Well, what better way to start off the new year uh, than with coming to understand more about our Lord and Saviour, the Lord and Saviour of this world, Jesus Christ. Today, we are back uh, in the Gospel according to Mark, and in our passage this morning, we'll see that Jesus is the authoritative teacher. Uh, For the reader of Mark's Gospel, it should be no surprise to learn that Jesus is the one who teaches with ultimate authority. He is the one whose words have incredible power, uh, not only over the authorities in the physical realm, but also those authorities in the spiritual realm. And we ask, well, why should it be no surprise to us that, that this is the one whom we should listen to and obey? Well, Mark has already explained this in, in numerous ways, showing that Jesus is the divine king, the one who is both God and man. In Mark 1 verse 1, he opens his gospel account with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This Jesus, he is the God-man who has come to save sinners. And as we've seen in uh, our studies over the previous months, uh, in this opening chapter, Mark reveals more about this divine king. Uh, His arrival fulfills prophecies of long ago. His arrival is, is prepared by the divinely appointed forerunner in John the Baptist. Uh, We see at his baptism that this event reveals his identity and his mission. The the audible voice coming down from heaven, this is my son. And then with the visible sight of the Holy Spirit descending upon him, anointing him for this earthly ministry. We see then his, his defeat of Satan and his temptations in the wilderness... And then as Jesus begins his public ministry, we see his announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God. God's saving rule mediated through himself. And then he he gathers his disciples to proclaim the gospel of salvation. Even, Even when Jesus calls them to be fishers of men, it's not merely, he's not merely being clever in that they're on a boat fishing and he he then says, well, you're going to now fish for men. Even in this moment, that use of language, uh, it is a fulfilment of God's work to gather his people to himself. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah of the time when he would gather his people back from exile. And in Jeremiah 16, 16, we read, Behold, I am sending for many fishes, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. God's purposes were being fulfilled through his eternal son, the word made flesh. All of this Mark has already taught us about the Lord Jesus. And so uh, when we come to verse uh, 21... We should not be surprised to see that this Jesus is also the authoritative teacher. 
And as he is the one who speaks with divine authority, it is necessary that we respond appropriately. To respond in repentance of sin and to respond with faith and obedience to him and him alone. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read through verses 21 to 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So in this amazing passage we see the authority of Jesus' words over the physical realm and also over the spiritual realm. And so first, the physical realm, Jesus overshadows the scribes. The authoritative teacher, point one, overshadows the scribes. And so let's work through this text together. It begins, and they went into Capernaum. Who was they? Well, Jesus and his disciples. Mark 1, 16 to 20. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James and John. And they went into Capernaum. Capernaum was on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a prominent fishing town. And Jesus had just called these men from their boats on the shore of Galilee. Capernaum became the base of Jesus' Galilean mission and ministry. Uh, We might ask the question, why was this so? Uh, You know, his hometown was Nazareth. Why... Why wouldn't he have based himself in that place where he had all these resources? He knew all of these people. He knew the towns and he knew what was there. Well, Luke 4 records that Jesus was rejected by his own hometown. They they knew him possibly too well in his human sense. This is just Jesus, Mary's son. Isn't this the carpenter? Why should we listen to this guy? Uh... Later on, Jesus tries a second time ministering in that area in in Mark chapter 6, but still to no avail. But we also recognise that Capernaum was was a crucial spot because that was where his disciples uh, worked from. They lived here. In Mark 1.29, we read that Simon, Peter and Andrew, they had a home there. So it was a perfect place to begin. The text continues, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue 
and was teaching. That's one of those characteristic terms of, of Mark, isn't it? Immediately. And he uses that all the time to keep the story flowing. It doesn't mean that Jesus you know, entered the synagogue the second the Sabbath began. It doesn't mean he started teaching the second that he walked through the door of the synagogue. It's, it's there to connect these episodes together, to keep the account moving. And it shows Jesus' intent. Uh, he was purposeful in what he was about. But this day was a, a Sabbath day. It's an important day. It was a, a day of rest uh, from labour. Six days you shall work, on the seventh you shall rest, as God had done when he created the world. Of course, we know that God never rests. He's always sustaining, but he ceased from his creation. But we, his creations, are to follow that example. A day of rest from our labours. A day to focus on God's provision. A day to gather with God's people. And that, that's what the word synagogue means. It means to gather together. Synagogues arose in the time of the Babylonian exile when uh, the Jews could not go to the temple in Jerusalem. They were too far away and it had been destroyed. But when they were brought back from the exile, they continued to use synagogues um, even after the rebuilding of the temple. The synagogue became the, the centre of the Jewish community in each local town. But as Jesus came into the synagogue on that particular Sabbath day, it says that he was teaching. It was common practice in the synagogues for travelling rabbis or other qualified men to be invited to read the Old Testament scriptures and then to explain their meaning to the people. Mark 1, 14 to 15 tells us that Jesus had already begun preaching and by now he developed quite a reputation and so he was invited to take the pulpit, so to speak. But note also that while Mark doesn't have Jesus' long discourses, his, his teaching material like you find in the other Gospels, there's no recording of the, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount or in John where you know all that teaching in the upper room. Mark doesn't have all of that stuff. But he does strongly emphasise over and over again that Jesus was a teacher, even if he doesn't record the content. Jesus was a teacher, says Mark. Indeed, that was his primary task. If we flick over to chapter 1 and verse 32, we see that um, the next day or shortly after we read that evening, this is chapter 132, that evening after sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. But what does it say in verse 38? The next morning, he says to his disciples, when everybody's coming looking for him to, to come and uh, seek healing from him. Jesus says to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. 
Of course, he did not merely teach, but his primary task was to teach. He was the teacher. And as Christ's church, we would do well to recognise the emphasis of our Lord's earthly ministry because he has actually passed that on to us. Matthew 28, a passage familiar to most of us. In the Great Commission, Jesus says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them. And of course, if teaching is so important for discipleship, then so is learning. We are never to stop learning as Christ's people. I mean, how are we to teach others about Christ if we ourselves are not learning about Christ by studying his word? Disciples of Christ are to be by nature students of Christ and his word. But we know that our teacher is no mere teacher, is he? Look at the response of the people upon hearing Jesus' teaching. Verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. How did the, the crowd respond to Jesus' teaching? They were astonished because he taught with authority. When Jesus spoke, they were struck out of their senses. I mean, that's what astonished means. He, he bowled them over by the way that he spoke and by what he spoke. They'd never heard such teaching before. And who is Jesus' authority contrasted with? The scribes. And who are the scribes? They are the teachers of the law. Experts. These are the people whose living it is to teach God's word. But Jesus' authority is greater than them. And I think we can, we can see that in at least two ways. Firstly, Jesus taught with precision. He taught with precision. The scribes, they were originally to read the scriptures and to explain the scriptures. Does it get more complicated than that? Read the text, explain the text. In Nehemiah chapter 8, after the return of Israel from exile and then the rebuilding of the temple and the wall around Jerusalem, uh, the scribes who were led by Ezra, they did what? Nehemiah 8 verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is what the scribes were supposed to do. Read the text, explain the text. But as time went on, they eventually became experts also in the interpretations of the law given by previous rabbis. So instead of clear preaching of God's word, it became complicated pontifications of man's thoughts. But when Jesus came, he taught with such precision and focus on the word of God as had never been heard before. 
This priority of Jesus on the word is exactly what he expects from his followers, from his church in general. I said that we are to be students of the word. But he expects this from his leaders in particular. The Apostle Paul wrote to Titus regarding the importance of sound doctrine in the church. He said in chapter 2 verse 15, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. The preacher, the Christian leader, their authority is not intrinsic within themselves. It is only in the word that he preaches. And if it is not from God's word that he speaks, then there is no authority. And the scribes forgot this. May we never forget this. And so Jesus taught with precision. But secondly, Jesus taught with power. He taught with power. See, in their teaching, the scribes declare things about God. But Jesus, in his teaching, dismantles the strongholds of Satan in the power of God. When Jesus speaks, things happen. But it's not merely God's power at work in him. He's not a mere human conduit for the divine power to to work through. No, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus showed that he possessed God's power intrinsically because he was and is God in the flesh. Truly God, truly man. The eternal word, God the Son, become flesh. Now we will see this power in a moment as Jesus combats the spiritual powers. But here, we can see his authority over the earthly powers. Those who would be Israel's teachers are no match for Israel's true teacher. So Jesus is the authoritative teacher who overshadows the scribes. Now second, Jesus is the authoritative teacher who overpowers the spirits. The precision and the power with which Jesus teaches, it actually exposes a demon who had possessed a man within that synagogue. This demon has heard the truth of God's word and he can no longer stay concealed. It has seared him and he is absolutely terrified. Verse 23, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, might ask, was the the man with the unclean spirit in the synagogue before Jesus taught? Or or did he come in after Jesus began teaching? Well, no doubt he was already there. The unclean, that is the the morally impure spirit, this demon, uh, would not purposefully come to Jesus. This unclean spirit would not come to the one in whom the Holy Spirit indwell. No, his cries indicated strong emotion and that emotion was fear. 
It should not be surprising that a demon would find itself at home in a setting of works-driven righteousness and false religion. Wherever the Holy Word is not preached and adhered to, there uncleanness and immorality resides. And that this demon uh, had sat comfortably in the synagogue until Jesus taught. That just speaks volumes. Verse 24 then tells us uh, what the unclean spirit cried out. He said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What have you to do with us? He's not saying that there's there's multiple demons having possessed the one person. No, this demon is, is speaking on behalf of his fellow brethren, us, as in us demons, me being one of them. And who are the demons? They are the fallen angels, those who joined with Satan against God and were cast out of heaven. This uh, happened sometime at the end of day six of creation after God had declared all that he made very good. And then sometime before the serpent tempted Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. These heavenly creations took on the Creator and they failed. And we can read about this in in several key texts of Scripture. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says that if God... It's in the middle of a discussion, but I'll, I'll leave off the for if. It says, God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then in Jude 6, uh, it says a similar thing. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains and under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then in another passage in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, words that are a judgment towards the Babylonian king, a mere man, uh, is language that is far loftier uh, than what man might aspire to. Isaiah 14 verses 12 to 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Because these fallen angels, these demons once resided in heaven they know full well who jesus is and they know full well what jesus will do to them and so this one fallen angel responds to jesus preaching of the word in in there's two aspects to his response he firstly responds with hate what have you to do with us jesus of nazareth speaks of Jesus' humanity, but 
This demon does so in, in derogatory language. Nazareth being a byword for something useless, something pathetic. Even Jesus' own disciples uttered before they, they met Jesus. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And then they met Jesus. But this hate of the unclean spirit is quickly replaced by horror. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon is terrified because he knows full well who Jesus is. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This demon knows that the man Jesus is also the Holy One of God. He is the divine and perfect Son of God. I mean, as we've seen, Mark opened his gospel to explain who Jesus is, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But he doesn't have to explain this to the demons. They already know that full well. And they know what the divine Son of God will do to them. He will destroy them. And we we can see that in the gospel accounts. Jesus had already defeated Satan in the wilderness. Jesus casting out of demons showed the power of God's kingdom rule. Uh, Jesus would ultimately defeat satanic power through the cross. Two verses which, which show Satan's defeat through the cross. Colossians 2 verse 15 speaks of Jesus who disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then in Hebrews 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And of course, the final judgment will be for Satan and the demons when as Revelation 20 verse 10 states, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that final judgment is ensured by the victory on the cross. Demons are asking, has that time now come? And it scares the life out of them. But now to the cries of this petrified demon, verses 25 and 26. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Here is Jesus' powerful word on display. He didn't need to pray and ask for God to cast out the demon. He didn't need to do some sort of funky dance to draw upon uh, the powers of God. He just spoke. He rebuked it with some simple words and the demon had no choice but to submissively respond. That is the power of God's word in Christ. But this demon didn't go quickly, however. There's this a clear sight as he convulsed the man, and there is a clear sound as he cried out through the man. But there is victory nonetheless. 
Just note as well at this point that the Bible doesn't confuse sickness uh, with spiritual possession. The man didn't have a deficiency. He had a demon. And only the Holy One of God had the power to remove it by his words. Now, even though the demon testified uh, as to who Jesus was, Jesus didn't want or need uh, this testimony. If he had let the demon speak on his behalf, then the religious authorities would have had grounds to charge him as being in league with Satan, which is exactly what they tried to do later on in Mark chapter 3. But of course, Mark has already shown earlier in his gospel that Jesus did not succumb to the temptations of Satan. Jesus didn't conspire with Satan. Jesus came to crush Satan. And in the context of this passage, we see that Jesus' authority over the spirits, it actually authenticates Jesus' authority over the scribes. His overpowering the spirits proves that he overshadows the scribes. Jesus is the one to listen to. For this man from Nazareth is the Holy One from God. And the response of the crowd links those two aspects together in verse 27. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Jesus He leaves the crowd feeling the same way they were when he began teaching. They were all amazed. And it's a different word to that which we find in verse 22, but essentially the same meaning. Uh, He stunned these people. They were captivated and stirred by what they had seen and heard. It's like Mark uh, getting out his ancient thesaurus to find words to capture the crowd's astonished reaction. How can I I show you this? How they were feeling. And the crowd's amazement connects the authoritative power of Jesus' words over the scribes and the spirits. No wonder this teacher speaks with greater authority than the scribes. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And the experience of the crowd then extends to the countryside in verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Word about Jesus spread like wildfire, such that, as we read earlier in verse 33, the whole city was gathered at his door. But the question must be asked, why? Why? Did everyone gather to hear Jesus? Why was everyone so enamoured with Jesus? Yes, he spoke with authority, but what was it that they wanted from that authority? Aside from the crowd's reaction of astonishment, what does the text tell us about what they did? Well, verse 27 tells us that. They were amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? What did the disciples do when Jesus called them? They dropped everything and followed him. What did the crowd do? They sat around and talked about it. 
They were amazed, yes, but contrast to the disciples, but contrast in this context to the reaction of the demon. He was not amazed, he was afraid. The crowd's encounter with Jesus led to uh, debate about who Jesus was. The demon's encounter with Jesus led to feelings of dread about who Jesus was. And these different reactions simply stem from a different understanding of who Jesus was and is. The crowd thought, key word there, they thought that Jesus' authority would lead to bringing physical healing, both freedom from sickness and freedom from spiritual oppression. But the unclean spirit knew. He didn't think. He knew Jesus was the Holy One of God. He knew Jesus had come to bring in God's kingly rule. He knew Jesus had come to judge sin and the unclean spirits and Satan. He knew Jesus' true identity and authority and mission, and he responded appropriately. If the crowd knew Jesus, like the unclean spirit did, then they too would have responded in kind. As sinful, fallen human beings, they would have cowered in fear in the presence of the Holy One. But there is a difference between the situation of the demon and the situation of this crowd. You see, unlike this unclean spirit, the unclean people, they had hope. For it was humanity that God had come to redeem. Not the angels, but humanity. And so their fear of God's judgment on their sin could be replaced with joy concerning God's gracious salvation through faith in his Son. For those who repent and believe in the gospel, those who turn away from their sin and trust in the Saviour, the Son of God, there will be eternal life and joy in God's kingdom. Unlike those people who stood before Jesus that day, I pray that you would be among those who hear the words of the authoritative teacher and respond in faith. For only in him is salvation found. For only he overshadows the scribes and overpowers the spirits. For only he is the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you today that we have been able to study more about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the one whom we should listen and obey. Father, we thank you that he is the one who speaks with authority. He has power over this earthly realm and power over the spiritual realm. Father, we pray that you would humble us Humble our spirits by the power of your spirit that we may acknowledge our need of salvation, our need of the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.